Hello, welcome to the Loney Show. I'm your host, Johnny Loney. In this episode, don't have regulars, as usual, for reasons, of course. But uh, you know how it goes. Go with the flow, you know. So as for our guest, she's from New Mexico. She is a retired psychotherapist. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Phyllis Livet. Hi, um, thank you so much for having me here today. It's really a pleasure to talk with you. Yes, I agree. So how is life? Well, I would say my personal life is pretty, um, pretty good. And I'm looking out at the world around me, and there's also some wonderful things happening and some causes for alarm. All right, then. And have you been up too much recently? Yes, I have just completed writing a book called America in Therapy, and I'm in the process of um, finding my publisher. But I'm really out there in the world talking about my book and what's in my book and connecting with other people who are interested in the same kinds of views and also talking to people who aren't interested in the same kinds of views, if that's possible. All right, then. And in terms of the book, America in Therapy, what does it talk about specifically? Okay, so my background is I am a therapist for over 30 years, and I have worked with children and families and individuals and couples, um, and I worked in the very beginning of my career in a sexual abuse treatment program. So I worked with a lot of abuse family dynamics. And uh, what I have found over the years of being a therapist is there's really quite a bit more um, of dysfunction and abuse and neglect in our families than many people might imagine. Um, I've heard stories that sometimes sound unbelievable of what people have experienced, except they're true. So I feel concerned about the overall um, health and well-being of the fa of individual families in America, and basically what I what I what I came to conclude after years of work with individuals and families is that it's we need to look through the lens of family systems and what happens in families because individuals are conditioned by the family climate, the family values, the role models, um, the role models for men and women, the role models for conflict resolution, what's expected of them, what's not expected of them. We learn this in our families. And more and more, we learn this from the larger groupings of families around us, our communities, our peer groups, our houses of worship, business places, and the federal government and the government, you know, state government, federal government, these are, I consider all of these groupings families with family dynamics, and they are either healthy or not healthy. Um, and they help produce and support health in the individuals that belong to them, or they oppress and withhold from and sometimes seriously harm or even kill them. And so the point of my book is two things. Um, I would say the subtitle of my book, American Therapy, is a new approach to hope and healing for a nation in crisis, because I do believe that in many ways our nation is in crisis, and that what we have learned from family therapy and from psychology, if we were to apply the healing principles that we already know can work and help break the cycles of dysfunction and abuse, if we were to apply them 
to the larger families in America, our institutions, our places of business, and our government, we would have great hope of healing some of the great divides and pulling ourselves back from such an escalation of violence. So I talk about what's not working, I talk about what could work, and I talk about what psychology and psychotherapy have to offer that we could actually implement both as individuals and as organizations, large and small. So that's it in a nutshell. Fabulous. And what inspired you to write America in Therapy? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think most of us are inspired by something in our own lives, and that sort of you know, points the way of what we want to work on. And certainly I had some trauma early in my life that, um, that really was very difficult to recover from because I'm, I'm 76. And when I was young, nobody talked about therapy. Nobody talked about our psychology. Nobody talked about family dynamics. And so I was left with the conclusion that something was just amiss with me, which I think a lot of people still are. Um, but eventually, psychotherapy kind of came on the scene with the people that I know when I was in my mid-30s, and I went to therapy for the first time. And just some of the big puzzle pieces of my life began to fall into place. I started to make sense to myself, and I had a path to carve out to, um, you know, survive and thrive and, and recover from some of the effects of what happened to me. And that just led me to realize that there were so many people out there suffering in ways that I have suffered and way more than I have suffered. People who survived war, who just are still surviving discrimination and, you know, inability to access resources and who are targeted as inferior or unworthy. Um, I realized that there's so many people suffering who don't maybe even know what's happening to them or why they're as symptomatic as they are. So one of the things I cover in my book is, you know, what are the symptoms of people who are hurt by other human beings and don't get help and very often don't get rescued from that and they continue to be um, traumatized and stigmatized and targeted. So I'm trying to, you know, that really motivated me to look at particularly our country, although I think the things that I'm talking about are happening all over the world. But I, I focus on America because I live here and, you know, I'm familiar with America and I don't know other cultures. Hmm. All right, then. Sounds interesting. And, and during your time you worked as a psychotherapist, what, what is mainly the most common questions you get asked? You know, it's interesting. I don't think I get asked particular questions so much as I could share with you some of the main things that I see um, that are sort of patterns in what I see. Um, and that, you know, so people, you know, people don't really come in and say, can you heal me? <laughs> they really don't. I think, um, I think they come, first of all, I think most people come to therapy because something really significant isn't working in their lives. You know, like we go to a doctor only when, you know, something isn't functioning in our body or we're in pain or, you know, we're injured or we have a disease. There's some big motivation. And it's the same for therapy. People come when there's a big motivation to heal something that is very painful emotionally usually in their lives. And generally, it's in the realm of relationship. 
there's a there's a lack of love, there's a loss of love, there's betrayal or injury, or um, there's some way that people feel like they don't belong or they're not valued. And this can be in their home, it can be in their workplace, it can be in their community, it can be in their race, it can be in their gender, it can be, you know, in any one of a number of settings, but something isn't working and they don't know what to do. And they're just in pain. And the coping mechanisms that they've come up with and it could be, you know, isolating, it could be overeating, it could be gambling, it could be drinking, it could be becoming a people pleaser, it could be becoming a workaholic. The ways that they're coping aren't meeting the need and often are causing more pain on top of the pain that's already unresolved. So people come when they're in that state and they pretty much, you know that when they walk in the door and they know that. So they don't so much ask me to help them because that, because coming is asking to help them. Um, but what I would say is for the, uh, I will say this in answer to your question though, for the people that I've seen over the years, and there've been many who have survived horrible, horrible abuse in their families or, or on the, you know, in school settings or among peers, but very often within the family, I would say that's, one of the worst um, configurations of abuse that I've seen, for people who have suffered that way, most of them have not talked about it with many people because there's a lot of shame and fear around exposing abuse. And so there's just such great relief at being able to talk about it and being in a safe place where there's no judgment and where there is the possibility of help. And so actually the first thing the first thing that, that I think any probably good therapist does is be a really good listener and make it safe for people to tell their story. Um, so it's not so much asking questions as it is like learning to trust another human being. Because as I said, most of the pain that people bring to therapy comes from some violation at human hands. And so trust has been broken or injured or even you know, almost destroyed. So trust building is the beginning. So it's a deep listening. And then, of course, you know, we say, this is what we have to offer. This is how I work with what you're presenting. This is what I've seen happen for people. This is what I've seen see comes up for people. And it sort of normalizes something that has felt very isolating and scary because I know that from my own experience. Um, so I didn't have that kind of help when I was young. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does make a lot of sense. What What is the best way to stay motivated? You mean for me or for clients? For clients in general. You know, I think it's a combination. I think that's a great question. Um, I think that there are people who leave therapy too soon because they're really afraid of what it's going to require in terms of the changes they might have to make in their life. Um, for instance, sometimes people are in a very destructive relationship, but they're just too frightened to leave. And they have an inner sense, which is accurate, that the healthier they get, the less they're going to be able to tolerate that. But I guess what I would say that, you know, that's not true for everyone. That's just, that's just an example of something that could happen um, because many people are happy to gain the strength to allow them to leave destructive relationships, um, 
terrible workplaces or other involvements that they have that really are not good for them. So, you know, basically that motivation is there. So to keep that, to help feed that motivation, it's a combination of having really good therapeutic skills to offer them, you know, processes that we do, ways that we work with their inner child that start to bring relief from some of the wounds that people have suffered. So offering actual therapeutic intervention that a client sees are working, that's probably the best motivation of all. Um, but also offering empathy, you know, so like I said, so many people are afraid to talk about how they've been victimized or even how they've hurt other people because we have so much shame around not being perfect and looking good. So I think the creation of safety makes it possible for people to start to become whole and realize that they are not what happened to them. They're, no matter how bad the abuse has been, that's not who they are. That's what happened to them. And no matter how much they might have hurt other people along the way, that also is not who they are. And there's a possibility of making amends, changing one's behavior now. So it's really a combination of being safe to go into the wounds and feeling that there's really an experience of a path forward. All right, then. Good. If someone wrote a book about you, what do you think its title would be? <laughs> That's a great question. I will have to think about that for a minute. Um, well, you know, um, I was in a, in a workshop many, many years ago, and we were supposed to give ourselves um, sort of a, a calling card that people could, could, could recognize us by. So I think that's probably where I'm going to go in answer to your question. And mine was light in the darkness, because I felt like I found light in the darkness. And I have written two other books um, about kind of more about my personal journey and my spiritual kind of development along the way. And the first one I called Light in the Darkness. So I guess maybe that would be the title. So, sounds very fitting, actually. Thank you. You're welcome. Who's the funniest person you know? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um. Well, I would have to say it's one, I have two sons and a daughter and my younger son, I think is the funniest person I know. He can make you laugh like nobody's business. <laughs> and he just does that, you know, around his loved ones. He's not a comedian. Mm. All right then. Do you have any pets? I have had many pets in the past, but I don't now. I have had mostly cats, but I've also had a couple of dogs. All right, then. Very good. If you had to bury a treasure chest, where would you hide it? Well, I'm going to answer your question in a funny way. I really think today that we don't want to bury our treasures. I think we want to share them. So if I had a treasure chest, I whatever was in it, whether it was money or wisdom or love or, you know, good ideas or anything else, I wouldn't want to bury it. I would want to share it. And that's really what I'm trying to do with the book that I'm writing. I like it. Okay. Yeah, I never thought about that, but it sounds pretty good. Yeah, I think that's the world we live in. You know, we need each other. We need each other's best gifts. We need each other's support. We need each other's talents. We need each other's 
you know, we all have different in, insights and pieces of the pie that we have to offer to the whole of what could help, you know, help people really survive the kinds of things that we're facing now, climate change and such escalation of violence in our country and so much hatred and rhetoric. It's so, you know, it's just so attacking. We have so many things that we need all of us on board to help change and bring us back to safety and bring us back to connection with each other and a spirit of cooperation, which is exactly what we would want in a good family, right? That's what we yeah. look for in a family. Absolutely. If you could turn any activity into an Olympic sport, what would you have a good chance of winning a medal for? <laughs> I probably wouldn't be in the Olympics. <laughs> so I don't know. I think it would have to be, um, you know, if there was a new Olympic that was about wordsmithing, I would want to be in that race. How's that? <laughs> uh, so, sounds something you would do very good at, to be honest. So, yeah, that's that sounds pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. What's your favorite quote? Well, you know, I probably have several, but one of them that comes to mind because it was one that I, that really inspired me when I was writing my book um, was a quote by Martin Luther King. And he had said something like, and I think this is, I think this is a pretty good, um, uh, you know, rendition of his quote. Um, and what he said was, it's not a question, my friends, between violence and nonviolence. The question is between violence and non-existence. And I really think that's true. I think we're headed in a very dangerous direction where we still believe in creating nuclear weapons. We still threaten to detonate them when we know full well that um, most of life on this planet could, if not all, could be destroyed. So I, I think he was a prophet in his own way. And I love that quote because it just really cuts to the heart of what I think we, we need to face and we can face. I saw a really powerful um, documentary the other night called Ice on Fire. And it's about climate change and what the scientists that were talking in the documentary were saying was where they were talking about the urgent need to capture, not only reduce our carbon emissions, but capture the, the carbon that's in the air as much as possible. And we have technologies now that can do this. So it's like, we know what to do. And the challenge is to do what we know to do. And I would say the same thing for our psychology and our mental health. We know so much in the field of psychology and family dynamics about what heals and what breaks the cycle of violence and family dysfunction. And we have to commit to using it. So, um, so that's, that's where I am with that. Great. What improved your life quality so much you wish you did it sooner? Well, I wish psychotherapy as I know it now had been available when I was young, but I don't even think some of the techniques and skills that I have learned anybody really was using when I was young. And, and I wish that um, whatever, whatever might have been possible then would have been more mainstream and acceptable because I think there was a lot when I was younger. I first heard about going to a therapist when I was in college. 
but it seems so stigmatized, like there's something really wrong with you if you do that, rather than it takes courage to get help, you know. Um, so that's something that I, I wish was different. Um, but, you know, we, I think for all of us, we, we just learn as we go and can't change the past. And things happen when they do. And I'm grateful that I found that avenue when I did. All right, then. What is something most people consider to be a luxury, but you don't think you could live without? Well, I don't know the answer to that question. I guess because, you know, going back to your other question, I think I think the thing that most people want is love and belonging. And I don't consider that a luxury. I think that's a necessity of life. The other things, yeah, you know, I love my car. I love my computer. I love living in a house that, you know, has good light and is in a beautiful place with clean air. But um, we don't know what we're going to be asked to live without later on. I would not want to live without love. I would not want to live without a feeling of belonging. I agree. Would you rather not be able to open any closed doors or not be able to close any open doors? I think you're going to have to explain that one to me. Okay, so there's a bunch of closed doors, but you can't open them. There are lots of open doors, but you can't close them. Would you rather have opens that are closed but can't be opened or have doors doors that are open but can't be closed? Well, tell me, tell me for you, I'd be interested to know what's that a metaphor for? Like, like what, if you were looking at that question, what, what does that symbolize for you? Because it's sort of like, would you rather die by fire or by freezing? You know, like, I'd rather not die. <laughs> I see it as a way of seizing the opportunity while it still lasts and yeah, yeah. go where the, where the wind takes you. Yeah. Yeah. In that sense, I would go with um, the doors that can't be closed, but they're open. You just got to see what's on the other side. So if that's your metaphor, yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah, I agree. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. What's a common misconception people have about you? Well, I don't know that they do. Um, But I think I would say when I was younger, I would imagine that people thought I had my life way more together than I did because I looked, you know, pretty solid and functional from the outside because I kept most everything buried. But I don't know that the people who know me now would say something like that. I don't, I think that that the, the circle of people that are in my life right now probably see me pretty much the way I am. I don't imagine that they have any big misconceptions. I haven't, experience that with them yeah i agree to that we all we all have our own biases and perspectives right live life you just want to live right exactly and we you know i think as you get older you find people that are probably more on your wavelength to spend your time with so you know my friends are pretty much like-minded with me yeah absolutely if you could live anywhere in the world where would it be Well, it would be right where I am. I am in Taos, New Mexico, and I live up in the mountains, and it's very, very beautiful here. And I love the the dry sort of deserty climate that I'm in. The air is really clean. 
The mountains are beautiful. We have incredible blue skies and beautiful sunsets. And the winters aren't too cold. And the summers aren't too hot. Um, we could use a little more rain. But I don't think I would choose anywhere else. There's places I would visit, but um, I would live here. Well, the way you described it, I want to live there too. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty beautiful. And it's a small town, so it's very, you know, it's not overpopulated or built up. It's just, just a lovely, lovely place. Nice, nice. Would you ever try space tourism? Personally, no. I would not do that. <laughs> I would love to see the pictures that other people bring back. And I think that's incredibly brave and courageous for anyone who wants to fly into space. But no, I, I would not be that candidate. I understand that. Uh, everyone's afraid of heights or explore new places where there could be other life forms, you know? That's perfectly understandable. Yeah. I mean, again, I think some of the exploration that we're doing is amazing, whether it's, you know, people are in those vehicles or not. But I just wouldn't be one of them. But I... I would love to know the information that they bring back. Yeah, me too. If you had to lose one of your senses, which one would you choose to lose? Good question. I mean, again, would you rather die by ice or fire? But because um, I like all my senses quite a bit. Um, but I definitely wouldn't want to lose sight. And I don't, I think, let's see, sight, smell, Taste. Well, smell and taste are really related because they you can't taste if you can't smell. Um, touch. I guess I'd have to go for taste because I wouldn't want to lose my sight or my sense of touch. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. If, if, if you had a song for every time you entered the room, what song would that be? Hmm. I don't know right off the bat. I'd have to give that one some thought. So nothing comes, nothing pops into mind. Um, oh. I just, if something does, I'll let you know. All right, then. That's all right. Neither could I. <laughs> when things break, do you prefer to fix them or replace them? Well, it probably depends on what it is. But I'm probably the person who wants to replace them. But I'm married to someone who likes to fix them. So we generally fix them. <laughs> and and if we can't fix them then we replace them and that's totally good with me ah all right then what's something you tried really hard to like but you couldn't mm. well you know i don't know i think what i'm where i am in my life right now and what, what i think is the challenge for a lot of people is there are people i just don't like particularly and um and I think that part of growth and development is tolerating, you know, tolerating the manifestations of people that you don't particularly care for and not becoming like highly overreactive or aggressive at all in response to them, which I'll certainly try not to do. But, um, but just, you know, to become more accepting, you know, people are different. They have, we have different conditioning. We have different upbringing. And we have different wounds that produce different symptoms. And so, you know, I think for me, I just really work hard at trying to accept people the way they are. And I think that's an ongoing um, challenge and an ongoing piece of work that I'll probably be doing for the rest of my life. Fabulous. 
And that is all we have for this episode. It was great having you on, Phyllis. Thank you. About your, your book and a lot of things been great. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your questions. You're welcome. And until next time, stay tuned for more.